With Elevate 150 from Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, you can grow financially stronger and so can Redeemer Radio. Visit NotreDameFCU.com slash Elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. There was a time before the Second Vatican Council, and there is a time after. The time before was old, outdated, stodgy, stale, and lifeless. The time after is modern, progressive, adaptive, active, and alive. Out with the old and in with the new. That, at least, is the way Vatican II has often been portrayed as a breaking point between liberals and traditionalists, between those who want to be relevant and those who want to be ancient. But maybe by interpreting Vatican II that way, we are seeing something that is not true. We are perhaps seeing a false image of the council rather than seeing the council itself. That, in part, is what my guest on today's show has to say to us and he wants to help the Church and the world to rediscover the Second Vatican Council for what it truly is, not for what we have been led to think about it, one way or another. Father Blake Britton is the author of Reclaiming Vatican II, what it really said, what it means, and how it calls us to renew the Church. Father Blake is a priest of the Diocese of Orlando, a frequent writer for the Evangelization and Culture blog and journal, and co-host of the Burrowshire podcast. As for me, I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. Father Blake, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Father Blake, at the base of your work, I found a really keen observation about two broad rival camps in the Catholic Church who view the Second Vatican Council differently, and in fact, it seems in opposition to one another. On the one hand, you have the so-called liberal interpreters who promote what Henri de Lubac has called a para-council, right, which is the interested in the spirit of the council, not necessarily in what was written at the council. But on the other hand, as you point out, there are the so-called traditionalists who reject the liberal view, and they go even so far as seemingly to reject the council, in large part because of the liberal interpretation that has won the day. So I suppose we better begin by talking about what this para-council is. It's really uh, an important place to start in understanding what you're trying to do in your book, since I believe you're identifying it as the root of the problem. Could you help us here? What is the para-council? Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the main things that inspired me to write the book. And it really was a revolutionary paradigm for my own spirituality and interpretation of the Second Vatican Council. As I mentioned in the introduction to my work, I started studying the Second Vatican Council and realized a disconnect between the documents themselves and what was commonly promoted as the spirit of Vatican II. And I I struggled with some time trying to, to comprehend where this came from, why this happened. And I found my answer, thankfully, in the great French Jesuit who already named Henri de Lubac and his commentaries on Vatican II, which he is writing within a decade time frame of the closing session. So this is happening relatively quickly where you have theologians who are disappointed 
with the council. They believed that it was not radical enough, that it did not make enough changes and according to their own personal ideologies. So they go out and masquerade under the auspices of Vatican II, their own personal interpretations or theological milieus. What I've identified as three major causes or, or aspects of the paracouncil, and I delineate these in my book. The first is what I call the Council of Theologians. The second is the Council of the Media. And the third is the Council of the Age. Briefly to go through those, the Council of the Theologians. As already mentioned, immediately following the Council, there were theologians who, who wanted to use Vatican II or who were disappointed in Vatican II that it did not go to the limits they thought it should have. So they used Vatican II as an opportunity to, to promote their own personal ideologies. And you see this with theologians. I'll just use one example, like Edward Skillebeck's, who actually, before Vatican II, is really on the avant-garde notions of theology. You know, there are several things he writes that are actually quite beautiful. So I don't want to paint him necessarily as a villain. But unfortunately, after the council itself, he does lean into this paraconciliar notion of theology where he's now saying that Vatican II did things which it did not. Uh, one mm -hmm. example I give in the book is a lecture that he gave in the 1960s in which he applauds Vatican II for calling the church the sacrament of the world. The only problem is that the council never used that definition whatsoever of the church. In lieu of that definition, the church actually voted on using the phrase sacrament of salvation. And there are serious theological ramifications for those two distinctions. There's a reason why it's better for the church to be defined more proper as a sacrament of salvation as opposed to sacrament of the world. But Skillebex did not like that, so he said that Lumen Gentium promoted the church's sacrament of the world. That's just one example of many. This is especially true when it comes to the sacred liturgy, which I'm sure we get to in a commentary mm -hmm. uh, here in a moment. But you had these theologians who, aided by the media, became incredibly popular in the years following Vatican II, and they start giving lectures at universities, at seminaries. They start teaching courses, saying what Vatican II was supposed to teach. But in the end, it's actually what they personally interpreted it to be. Uh, they weren't going to the documents themselves. Uh, one of the other major problems was that you had large people who were not reading the text, but were hearing everything secondhand. And that continues to be an issue nowadays. And that actually leads to the second development of the Paracouncil, which is the Council of the Media. I don't know if we appreciate or if anyone has really elaborated uh, appropriately on how influential the media was on Vatican II. Not necessarily the sessions themselves, because they were closed sessions, but in the interpretation of those sessions. One thing in particular that the media did, which continues to devastate the church nowadays, is putting onto Catholicism the first time those labels of liberal and conservative. Before Vatican II, before the media's coverage of the council, the church would never use those as operable ecclesial categories, meaning that the church never understood itself as a liberal conservative church. We are a Catholic church. We embrace the catholos, the, the wholeness of being. These polarized terminologies are not Catholic categories. Unfortunately, they continue to be used nowadays inappropriately to describe certain bishops or certain theologians or certain priests or you know teachings, whatever it might be. And, and they really do fail to capture the full experience of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And they, they handicap our ability to speak in an authentic dialogue about the teachings of the council and about theology overall. So that was a huge deal. The media being the mouthpiece of some of these theologians who are being paraconciliar and promoting their own theologies, as well as the media painting the council itself in the post-conciliar years as a political battle between liberal and conservative Catholics, which it most certainly was not. Uh, if you look at 
for example, the document on the sacred liturgy, the vast majority of bishops, even those who would be quote unquote liberal or quote unquote conservative, according to the media, they all agreed on sacrosanctum concilium. So obviously there wasn't a political divide when you have someone like Marcel Lefebvre voting in the same category as Cardinal Bea, right. who would be two totally different spectrum right. theologians in the mind of this liberal conservative dynamic. But in the actual documentation of the council, they're on the same page. Yeah. So, so there's a real, I think, keen example. And the third would be the Council of the Age. We can't also underappreciate, underestimate that the 1960s was a crazy time in world history. <laughs> uh, there's a lot going on. It's a post-World War II environment. America is starting to establish its economic and political dominance throughout the uh, post-war Europe. You have these new socialist and communist movements that are sweeping through Western civilization, and we're now starting to get it upon our own shores here in the United States of America, and it continues to be an issue in some places around the world. You have the space race, the Cold War, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the civil rights movement. There's all sorts of things in the environment around us that are distracting or that are influencing the implementation of Vatican II. And now what starts happening is that the spirit of the age, which in the 1960s and 70s most certainly was a spirit of trying to upheave any form of traditionalism, upheave any form of, of that which is before the 1960s and 70s. We got to stick it to the man. And that mentality does turn to the church as well. It does pervade the, the mindsets of laity and clergy both. And they see Vatican II as an opportunity to latch itself to the spirit of the world so as to debunk maybe some of these traditions. And again, to approach the church in a hyper-political way that's inappropriate. So all those, things, all those three things combined together, in my opinion, after my years of study, after researching the different commentaries, documents, and, and literature, it, those are the three areas that I could really say contributed to the development of the Paracouncil, which is really a, a counter-narrative or a false narrative about Vatican II, which has become predominant and prevalent in the contemporary church. And, and I'm not the only one who says this, as I've already mentioned, Henri de Lubac mentions it, but also Joseph Ratzker. One of the main interpreters of Vatican II, along with Carol Vortiwa, St. John Paul II, they both point to this false narrative that's developed around the council and has had undue influence on its implementation. So they mention that in several of their documents and post-conciliar commentaries. Yeah. I really appreciate the way in which you draw that out for us in these three sort of kind of councils, the theologians, the media, and then the Council of the Age. I think we could go down any one of those avenues and build our conversation from there. But I'm struck by what you're sharing with us that these labels of liberal and conservative coming from mostly media categories that are then put upon the council as a way to kind of cover the news there, that this was in fact a sort of new incursion upon the church. Now, certainly there were in the past uh, bishops who would have been more progressive and interested in kind of, you know, stretching things a little bit more to accommodate right, to right, the age. Right. And there would have been some who were more concerned with holding to the integrity of the tradition and the faith. But that those have those labels and categories have been put onto camps in the church is a new thing. And it's interesting for us now, 50 some odd years later, to think that it hasn't always been that way, because that's the only way in the popular media now we hear about bishops or church disputes, internal church politics is this is the liberal block and this is the conservative block. This is the group that is interested in compassion and mercy, and this is the group that's interested in tradition and a sort of legalism. How much do you think that that has just shaped our imaginations in the church, right? Like this was, this did this come out of the church or was this put on the church or is it both? Like we've accepted it and gone along with it. How much do you think this has shaped our consciousness? 
Entirely, entirely. And I would say especially the millennial and Gen Z group of Catholics, because we were raised in a purely post-conciliar church that has been unduly influenced by these categorizations. From my childhood, I remember hearing commentators speak about the liberal church versus the conservative church, you know, these old rigid Catholics versus these new age, really on fire evangelical Catholics. Right. And, and, you know, we're, we're part of the charismatic Vatican II church that wants to share the gifts. We're not part of that old Latin church, you know, when in reality, the, the council embraces all of these things, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you read Gaudium et Spes, I mean, the church is very much embracing the use of technology, the use of new forms of media to evangelize. That's not a liberal thing. That's just the Catholic means of evangelization. At the same time, if you read Sacrosanct Concilium, the church is embracing Latin and tradition and very adamant that Latin should be retained in the Latin rite or just or architecture should be beautiful and bishops have the responsibility and also priests have the responsibility to teach Gregorian chant. So the, the Vatican II encapsulates and folds all these things because, again, it's an authentically Catholic endeavor. What we now have nowadays is, is we're not able, I believe, to have true Catholic dialogue because these things become triggers. So the moment that we're talking about, well, let, let's get a parish program together to try to get us back centered on the Eucharist. And someone were to say, yeah, you know, I just think maybe we should try to integrate some praise and worship to the liturgy. You'd have someone, whoa, wait a second. And that, that just, it triggers them immediately. And they're not able to have, what do you mean praise and worship? Well, are you one of those liberal Catholics? All the baggage comes with it. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Or if you were to say, well, you know what, maybe during the season of Lent, in order for it to be more solemn, we just have it a cappella and we just chant the Latin mass parts. Oh, oh, Latin mass parts. What are you? So now we can't even have a dialogue on how to help the people of a God mm. grow in local parish communities because immediately the notion of Latin or the notion of praise and worship bring in all this baggage that cripples the conversation. So I do believe it certainly has influenced the past 50 years of Catholicism in a very negative way. And we have the responsibility and it really, it is necessary that we liberate ourselves from these categorizations and polarized ways of speaking so that we could freely have a conversation about, for example, is Adorientum, is facing East, a legitimate form of Christian liturgical worship or is it not? And we have to be open to either one of those answers. You know, is the use of technology with an evangelization, is that a legitimate form of evangelization or is it against the logic of Christianity? Let's, let's talk freely about it. Let's discern mm-hmm. it. And let's be able to have to freely enter into the dialogue, not with an interest in being right, but an interest in trying to do what the church is inviting us to do through the grace of the Holy Spirit. What I really recognize nowadays, uh, Lenny, is that there's no freedom anymore in this kind of dialogue. There's no freedom in conversation and discussion. And that's true, not just in the church, but I think across the board in secular society, that we have become so weighed down and so unable to freely let the truth have its say. And we're we're so interested in being right as opposed to being true Mm -hmm. that that negates our ability to progress as a people, but most certainly to move forward as a church. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Father Blake Britton, parish priest and assistant director of vocations in the Diocese of Orlando. We're talking about the reception and interpretation of the Second Vatican Council, building on his new book, Reclaiming Vatican II, what it really said, what it means, and how it calls us to renew the church. What you were saying there at the end in terms of the obsession, really, for being right, not for seeking after truth, 
it just strikes me this is such an anti-Catholic mindset, actually, that we ought to be in our intellectual pursuits, but also in our prayer, in our works, we ought to be set on communion, which doesn't mean sameness and it doesn't mean compromise across the board, but we're building towards communion and that's the primary category. And as you're saying, without that commitment to communion, to seeking after the Lord together, there's no space for discernment, right? To discern the word of the Lord because we're hearing in some ways what we want to hear, and then we cancel those who say what we don't want to hear. Everything comes in at once. How do you think that we recapture more of that spirit of communion, which might be the real spirit of Vatican II, right? To recapture that spirit of communion, to seek after the Lord together in the modern age. We hear this from a lot of the saints, and the answer is always humility, always humility. St. Teresa of Avila has one of my favorite sayings, which I've had to live by as a priest every day of my life. If you have the chance to be right or be obedient, she said, be obedient. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that just the opposite of like a modern mindset, right? Right. The chance to be right right or obedient, choose obedient. I will say that to my children tonight. (laughs) I know. You know, my bishop reminds me of it often, but. (laughs) It's in fact his motto. It's on his crest, right? Yeah, 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 that's under his seal, actually. Yes, right. (laughs) But, uh, But all joking aside, it has been a great consolation to me as a priest because there is a temptation to say, oh, you know, the bishop should do this or this pastor should do that or the church should do that, or USCCB should, you know, and maybe they should. I'm not saying that they shouldn't, but guess what? You took a vow. You, you, you're not the bishop. You, you are a member of the body of Christ, and that demands humility. And sometimes that humility will also demand persecution, and that persecution is sometimes unjust. But we're not willing to suffer that anymore. Uh, the saints have done this over and over and over again. Once again, Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, a great example, worked for adamant reform that was very much needed by the church and were viciously persecuted by the church hmm. for the sake of that reform. John of the Cross is thrown into prison by his own monks for heaven's sake. Hmm. And we're nowhere near that point. One of the points that I, that I mentioned in my book that I think actually is one of the most important aspects of the book, in my opinion, as the author, is the notion of suffering with the church. How do we suffer the shortcomings of the church with peace and with joy? Until we learn that, until we learn to do what St. Paul says, which is to make up on our bodies what is lacking in the suffering of the body of Christ the church. Until we learn how to do that, we're not going to be able to progress and move forward with this dialogue because it's going to demand humility and death to self and death to opinion in order for us to freely speak about the truth of Christ. So I think that's one of the main reasons why we're not able to have the conversation. And one of the ways we can move forward is we have to have the virtue of humility, and also we need education. We need education and catechesis. There is a lot of ignorance going around about Vatican II, and of course, Catholicism in general. But when it comes specifically to the council, we hear everything secondhand. I, I was a middle school teacher at one point, and I remember always telling my eighth grade students, I don't want to hear a Sparknotes edition of Dante's Inferno. I don't want to hear you know, what Wikipedia said about George Washington. If I gave you a report to do in our history class on George Washington, you dresses, you need to read his journals, his diaries, and tell me about the man that you've encountered personally. And then after having that primary resource, 
you are able to go into dialogue with secondary commentators and history books and what have you. The same needs to be said of Vatican II. One of the main purposes of this whole book is to inspire people. Don't take my word for it. <laughs> Don't think, you know, Father Blake is just going to tell me what Vatican II says. And he got, uh, this book isn't the answer. Vatican II documents are the answer. Uh, <laughs> right? the, the Vatican II's teaching, the will of the Holy Spirit, that's the answer. This book is just pointing us towards the answer is my hope. So go back and read the documents. That way, if you do have a pastor or you do have a teacher, you do have a fellow Catholic come up to you and say, man, I sure am happy that Vatican II did X, Y, or Z. You could say, oh, uh, I don't know. Where did you read that in the documents? Yeah. I, I have a funny story about that, actually, real quick. I, these are all pastoral experiences. And I'm so grateful that you know, I, was a, I was able to be a parish priest uh, my first several years of priesthood. You know, It's just, it's, you, you, get, you get real life experience pretty <laughs> darn quick. <laughs> Different than the seminary, right? Like, oh, here we, oh, yeah. here we are. Oh, yes. yeah. You're like, okay, it's time for a reality check here. You know, <laughs> the old ladies of daily mass will kick your butt in a second. Absolutely. That's where but, real uh, formation happens. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, I remember one time a group of, of the daily mass ladies and they came up to me and they noticed how I asked to personally purify the vessels and they were upset by that. I get it. It meant a lot to them as sacristans, you know, to purify the vessel, what have you. So I, I understand that. But as the priest, you know, I really feel called to purify. And actually, the general instruction of Roman Missal does suggest for the priest to purify at the altar. You know, that is something that is preferable. So I'd like to do that if I can. But what was funny was they, they sort of accosted me after, after the mass. You know, they came up to me and approached me and they said, Father... That's so pre-Vatican II. You know, Vatican II got rid of the priest purifying the vessels. The laity needed to do that. And I, I looked at them, I said, really? I was like, man, I don't remember reading that in Sacto Sancta Concilium. And they said, Sacto what? <laughs> Fancy Latin words. There's the problem. <laughs> There's the issue. Right. So I said, well, the first thing you need to do, my dear daughters, is to go read this document. I gave it to them in English. It said, go on the website, read this. And then we can have another conversation yeah. about me purifying the vessels yeah. in that. You know? Yeah, but there's, I think, a real life example of really of what's happening across the board. You know, where did they hear that Vatican II got rid of priest purifying vessels? Mm. Where did that come from? Mm-hmm. Obviously, not the documents. Mm-hmm. So, how did that narrative get strewn? That's yeah. one of the main points of my book is investigating that. Well, yeah, that seems to square with what you were saying earlier about the Council of the Age, right? Like, especially coming in the '60s and being beginning to be received in the '70s. This is a time of radical change of seeking towards change politically and culturally in a lot of different ways. And so anything that seems like it's a holdover from a previous age, let's say here the certain roles of a priest or even the Latin language, which seems like it's just ancient and it's not modern, those are going to be suspect. We're going to be suspicious of them. So I wonder, you know, as we if we were to think about the Second Vatican Council, I think you bring this up yourself in the book, two of the words that often get associated with the council are resource mount and mm. aggiornamento, resource mount, a yes. return to the sources, the sources of scripture of the early church, out of which the tradition of the church builds, and aggiornamento, the disposition of the church to preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the modern day, using all the means necessary to do so. I wonder how much you think that part of the problem in the interpretation reception of the council is the loss of the creative tension between those, that right. maybe it's the right. aggiornamento in order to really emphasize that you have to get rid of the connection to their tradition and the sources to be more relevant. Does that resonate with how you've seen this, that there's a loss of the tension between the two? Yes, yes, absolutely. And you're you're touching on a point that I think is one of the most devastating things about this hyper-political environment we've developed around the council is that we have hollowed out and reduced the council to a collection of hot topics and political categories. Uh, when in reality, Vatican II is incredibly theologically deep and profound. 
if you read Sacrosanct Concilium, especially the first 10 paragraphs, I mean, it's not going through practicalities of the liturgy. It's giving you a deep mystical theology of the mass, of the liturgy of Christ. Same thing is true of Lumen Gentium. In my opinion, Lumen Gentium is probably the most beautiful of the four documents. And it just, it gives paragraph after paragraph of amazing, deep, traditional, patristic, rich, renewing kind of theology that we're not even talking about because we're wondering whether or not to use Latin in the mass. So, you know, so we're so caught up in these kind of conversations that we're not even able to look at the real wealth and depth of Vatican II. And I do believe that is diabolical for sure. Mm. You know, the enemy knows what he's doing. So let's get them hung up on these kind of conversations. So they're not able to dive into what the spirit actually wants us to study and understand. So in light of that, you are 100% correct. Resource Mon, as you mentioned, uh, huge, huge in the development of Vatican II. There would be no Second Vatican Council without the Resource Mont movement. And I'm definitely not too bold to say that. That is a fact. Uh, if you look, the Resource Mont movement is something preceding the council by nearly 200 years. Mm. Go back to someone like Johad Anna Moller, who was one of my personal favorite theologians, the great scholar of Tubigen, which is Joseph Ratzinger's alma mater. Um, but him beginning to integrate patristic notions of the church, which is the study we call ecclesiology, back into the general study of ecclesiology throughout medieval Catholicism. And then after him, of course, the wonderful St. John Henry Cardinal Newman and his own notion of patristic integration of ecclesiology. That will be spearheaded at the very end by Matthias Sheban and his integration of Mariology with ecclesiology mm-hmm. that becomes chapter eight of Lumen Gentium, basically, one of the most important aspects of the entire document. All these things feed into the council. And that, again, also smacks against the narrative the Vatican II is somehow this new agey, out of nowhere council. I mean, it is very ancient, very sourced. Uh, It refers to the church fathers hundreds of times within the four major documents, including all the major councils, Council of Nicaea, Council of Ephesus, Council of Chalcedon, Council of Trent. It ties into all these things. So it's not just coming out of the blue. There's over two centuries of theological and historical archaeological development that lead to the writing of the Vatican II documents. And that is true also the adjournamento movement. Adjornamento is not a new concept. I mean, St. Paul was adjornamento for heaven's sake. That's why he walks into the <laughs> middle of Athens and starts preaching the gospel to philosophers, right? It's no coincidence, by the way, that St. John the Twenty-Third makes his official announcement of adjornamento. He uses that word the first time with the cardinals that he gathered on the feast of St. Paul outside the walls. Mm. He, he's tying Vatican II to the Pauline spirit of evangelization that's not seeking to present something new, it's rather presenting the joy of the gospel with a newfound fervor. Mm. So what's new is not the truth. The truth is ageless. What's new is the spirit with which the truth is proclaimed. There needs to be this fervor, this fire burning in our belly again that really had not because of multiple historical circumstances, not least of which was the Protestant Reformation, the circling of the wagons in the post-enlightenment period, the rise of secular atheism and scientific relativism. All these sort of things lead the church to, to, to really say like, holy moly, I'm just going to, you know, <laughs> let's just stay to ourselves and let's forget the world and hope it burns to the ground, you know? <laughs> and and the, the council uh, bishops were like, no, let's try a different thing. You know, yeah. <laughs> that didn't work out too well. Right. There were two wars, you know, it just, they just didn't go too well for us in that, that kind of paradigm. So why don't we approach the world a different way? And yeah. in my opinion, I think it's been very successful. You're never going to dance with the world. You're never going to enter into dialogue without getting... Um, getting hurt in some way. That's part of the tension of Christ. That's why Jesus was crucified. He entered in a dialogue with the world and he was murdered for it. That's the whole logic of the incarnation. Same thing with the church. So if we get more involved with the world, yeah, I mean, we're going to get some punches in the eye, but that also is how we're going to save it too. Mm. And that's something that's, that's very important for us. Are we willing 
to enter into this dialogue, I think Pope Francis really sums it up well when he talks about the art of accompaniment. Now, that's been degraded to mean like, oh, just meet people where they're at. I'm like, no, Pope Francis is meaning something a lot deeper than that. Yeah. Um, the art of accompaniment is a very Christological notion. It's a very incarnational notion about the very, the very logic of Christianity in and of itself, which seeks to walk with someone to the end, even if that someone at the end stabs you in the back. You still walk with them. Because that's what a crucified Savior does, and that's what his bride is supposed to do, too. Mm. This is Leonard DiLorenzo, and you're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Father Blake Britton. We are talking about the reception and interpretation of the Second Vatican Council, building on his new book, Reclaiming Vatican II, What It Really Said, What It Means, and How It Calls Us to Renew the Church. You know, as you were talking about aggiornamento there, I was remembering, uh, I think it's the foreword that Joseph Ratzinger wrote to Henri de Lubac's book, Catholicism, his seminal work, Catholicism. And when he's describing the role of Henri de Lubac as an ecclesial theologian, he's mm. talking about his resourcement attitude, that he goes back to the sources, that he dialogues with the fathers of the church, that he listens to them. But at the same time, he's listening to his contemporaries, us. He's listening to our problems, our questions. And what he's saying, I think, what Ratzinger is saying about de Lubach is that de Lubach then becomes a sort of bridge so that the fathers of the church, the whole tradition becomes contemporaneous with us, that we actually live in this space of communion. What it makes me wonder about here, Father Blake, is this is certainly about coming back and reading the actual documents of Vatican II if we're going to have a better understanding of it. But it also seems to me it's about a kind of formation of us as Catholics to have that kind of willingness to enter into communion across ages and across uh, differences, a kind of generosity of spirit to listen to and also to speak our own problems and our own questions. How do you think about that kind of formation happening for us today, whether it's in our parishes or in our schools and our families? What might be important aspects of becoming the kind of people who are capable of that kind of communion? Yeah, uh, to answer that question, I'm going to go ahead and refer to the first bishop of the United States of America, uh, Bishop John Carroll. Hmm. He was an amazing man. Uh, I don't think most American Catholics really appreciate how how just— unbelievably enlightened he was, but also the foresight he possessed as an Episcopal leader. Uh, and John Carroll was handed a pretty bad bag of apples. I mean, the United States of America was was young. Uh, it was not favored by any means. This, so this is shortly after the American Revolution. And the Europeans were not big fans of the United States of America initially. I mean, of course, put aside the French. But besides that, I mean, Rome was not giddy to give America its own Episcopal standing. And John Carroll fought for years just to convince Rome, hey, there are enough Catholics here and they're devout Catholics to deserve a flock. But once we finally finally do get an Episcopal seat through John Carroll, he has his hands full. Mm. There's a clergy that is not well-formed and not well-united and going all over the place. Masses and liturgical abuses are abounding. It's just a disaster. And then the laity themselves, besides their own private piety, are not very well educated or catechized in the faiths. So here he is with one of the newest countries on the face of the earth, uh, he's in this new project that no other country's ever tried before, which is a constitutional de Republican democracy. And now he has to try to be bishop over this <laughs> Republican democracy. And he's like, what do I do? You know what I do? He went back, though, and I, this is the genius of John Carroll. He realized that the truth and the wisdom of Christ could speak to any age. So what he did is he returned to the foundations of the apostolic church, which are the liturgy, specifically within the sacraments, so the sacramental life of the church. And secondly, catechesis, the kerygma. 
Christ gives himself to the world in an incarnate way, which primarily is through the Holy Eucharist, through the sacrifice of the Mass, but also through the other six sacraments. And Christ is a God who must be preached. He must be spoken about. He must be encountered. So he started focusing firstly on the clergy and saying to the clergy, I need you to become saints. That is the only answer. You need to become holy priests. And in the future, holy bishops who are sourced in the Eucharist, you are to dedicate the majority of your time preaching on the Eucharist, on the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Those were the two things John Carroll gave. You must preach on the Eucharist and the Sacrament of Reconciliation. He wanted monthly reconciliations in the parishes. He wanted Eucharistic devotions. He said, that's where everything's going to start. And that's true for us too in the post-conciliar church. Vatican II is going to be reclaimed if we go to where Vatican II started with the sacred liturgy. That was not coincidental. Vatican II started with a document on the sacred liturgy to say, this is more important than anything else. The reason the Catholic Church exists is to worship God. That is why we're here, to share in the Son's worship of the Father by the grace of the Spirit. If we don't do that right, well, then go home. Go home. And no, nothing else is going to work. That is our primary responsibility is to offer right, reverent, pious, holy, beautiful worship to the Father, because that's the reason why the church is in the world, by grace of the Son. So focusing, I think, on Eucharist and reconciliation in particular, but also just the sacramental life of the church in general. And that is where Fulton J. Sheen was absolutely correct in his own reflections on Vatican II when he says it starts with the priest. Hmm. It has to start with the clergy. I mean, this is how Jesus designed the church, that we are shepherds and the sheep have to follow us. You know, none of the sheep can become a shepherd. So the Lord has has entrusted us. So we'll have to start with the clergy in a lot of, a lot of ways, educating themselves, but also converting themselves. And I've had to do that myself. I was not raised with this understanding of Vatican II. I'm a Puerto Rican origin. I was raised celebrating mass of Puerto Rican immigrants in garages you know, with guitars. I, and it was beautiful, mind you. That's part of the enculturation of, of the church. But at the same time, as I grew and I matured in my understanding of the faith, I realized that there is an objectively higher order of worship that is important for us to try to actualize as much as possible. And I slowly over the years, as I studied the church, studied her liturgy, studied the teaching, was able to conform and to mature my heart and spiritual life to do what the church asks us to do. So I think that's important. Number two would be, of course, for the people of God themselves fall in love with the liturgy, fall in love with the sacraments. If maybe that's not being provided for you in a clerical way, then you can take initiative. And I have seen many laity take the bulls by the horn, so to speak, um, and studying the liturgy, reading the germ, going to Eucharistic adoration, going to regular confession, praying, falling in love with the way that Jesus is in the world. If you're married, study your sacrament. I mean, for heaven's sake, Gaudium et Spes, is there is no council in church history that has written as much on marriage as Vatican II. Uh, it really provides so much beautiful reflection spiritually on the sacrament of marriage, building upon, of course, what the Council of Trent writes. So that's in regards to liturgy. When it comes to catechesis, we got to up the game in two areas. One, our local parochial formation in catechesis. This is somewhere that, that Bishop Barron, I think, has thrived and hit the nail on the head. He constantly ask the question, why in our Catholic schools or why even in just regular CCD classes do we have a a seventh grader walking with a copy of Shakespeare and Algebra 2 underneath his arm and then his religion book looks like a coloring book from the second grade, you know? So the the Catholic faith is, in that case, is not attractive, is not competitive. So the child's being educated just already in that format. Well, Shakespeare is important. Algebra 2 is important. And yeah, religion, you know, it's just, it's sort of a side thing that I do. Um, we we have the richest intellectual tradition ever, hands down. 
There is no intellectual tradition in existence on the planet as rich as Catholicism. Let's act like it. Let's act like it. You know, let's teach it that way. Um, so our CCD programs, our RCIA programs, one of the great blessings of Vatican II, of course, was the RCIA reinstituting the, the right of Christian, Christian initiation of adults. And a lot of our RCIA programs are unfortunately not up to par. You know, they sort of become either self-led Bible studies or you watch a TV series on the church and then learn how to say the Hail Mary and you become a Catholic. But there, there's a lot more to faith formation than that. Um, the Liturgy of the Hours, integrating that into your life, something else Vatican II asked for all lay people to do twice a day was pray Liturgy of the Hours. That is said for the laity as well, not just for the clergy. You know, Most people don't know that. Uh, and so these are the kind of things as we catechize, as we educate ourselves on the richness of the faith, we will be struck in awe with the beauty of Catholicism. Von Balthasar, and I'll end with this. I think von Balthasar says it best when he writes in his, uh, his Glory of the Lord, Volume 1, which in my opinion is one of the great books of, of Catholic history, along with Jesus of Nazareth, that wonderful series by Ratzinger. But von Balthasar says that the Catholic Church is fortimosus, which is the Latin word for beautiful, but he goes back to the origins, the etymology of fortimosus, that it's, it's the institution that is most according to the form of everything my heart longs for. Hmm. It's the most formal reflection of every ache of the human desire. And when we allow that to shine forth, we allow, when we allow Catholicism to be formosus, to be formal, if we were to say it literally in English, but the better way to say it is to be beautiful. If we allow the beauty of Catholicism to shine through, I don't think it's a competition. Like Facebook and Instagram can't keep up with that. <laughs> You know, it's just, it's not even close. And I've seen this over and over again when I teach classes in the parishes for like high schoolers, you know, they'll come in and be typical, you know, 15 year olds on their Instagram accounts or Snapchat or whatever. But when you take the phones away and then I walk them through the church and explain the stained glass windows and the origins of them from turn of the century Germany and how they're made, they're just like glued, mm. glued mm. to it. And then I give the theology of stained glass how it's a reflection of our souls, why the Catholic Church invented stained glass before any other institution because it coincides with our arc incarnational theology, like all that kind of stuff. And these 15 and 16-year-olds are enthralled, enthralled, and they can't wait to come back again, but it's because I'm giving them meat, meat, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so I think that's going to be important for reclaiming Vatican too as well. This seems to respond to a question I was going to ask you, and I think you've answered it. Like, if we're talking about the importance of reclaiming Vatican II, why does it all matter? And I think you've just given us an account of that. Why does it matter? Because this tradition, the Catholic tradition, brings forward the gospel of Jesus Christ who responds to every ache of our human desire, as you said, right? right. So if we attenuate that, if we vitiate it, if we, caricature, if we caricature it, we're not actually getting what we need. Does that sound yes. right? Like, this is what yes. we need. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. And I, and I firmly believe that a lot of people are asking, what are we supposed to do in this world? What are we supposed to do mm-hmm. in this world to move forward? You know, the church where it's at, reclaim Vatican II. Mm. The Holy Spirit's already told us what to do. Just some of us don't either want to do it or we don't know about it. Yeah, we don't want to hear, <laughs> you know? we don't want to hear the Lord's voice. We want to hear our voice back, echoing right. back to us, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, good. so I have my own ideas about where the church should go. That's great, but I'm not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know? right. like, okay. And my, my church, the one that I'm going to start, always sounds right. like a good idea, but it's going to be a disaster, right? It's, right. It's I'm just like, not going trust to. Trust me. It, trust me. It doesn't end well. Does Martin right. Luther ring a bell? <laughs> right. So, but, uh, but all joking aside, yeah. you know, starting our own, having our own ideologies lead the church, yeah. you know, even if, if those ideologies do have some semblance of being rooted in the, in the church and her tradition or her progression, it, it's always going to be a failed caricature yeah. of what Catholicism actually is. Yeah. So 
I have my ideas and that's great, but I'm not the Holy Spirit. Yeah. The Holy Spirit has been very clear on his will and his will is the second Vatican council. That's yeah. what, I mean, he convened it and he, he's the one that inspired the documents. We have to believe that that's magisterial teaching. Yeah. And that speaks to the primacy of the liturgy too, doesn't it? Like this is God's work first. So we start there and our work begins from there. If we exactly. root ourselves in the liturgy. Yeah. Well, we, activism has most certainly penetrated the church in a lot of ways. And that's not really anyone's fault except secular society. We've become a very, you know, industrialistic kind of civilization. Right. But but you're you're absolutely right. A lot of people try to put the cart before the horse. We can't evangelize the world if we don't sit at the feet of Jesus. Mm. And we always, we get that, of course, from the story of Mary and Martha. Right. And sometimes that's misinterpreted to say, well, you have to be Martha sometimes and Mary. I'm like, nope, Jesus is pretty clear. you got to be Mary. <laughs> what she did is better. It starts period. there. Yes, indeed. indeed. <laughs> so, uh, so sitting at the feet of Jesus, sitting at the feet of Jesus is necessary before anything else. And that only happens in loving the liturgy, you know? Beautifully said. I've been talking today with Father Blake Britton. We're talking about his new book, Reclaiming Vatican II, what it really said, what it means, and how it calls us to renew the church. It is out now from Ave Maria Press. I highly recommend it to all of you. It is a great way to find our way back to the bedrock of Vatican II as the beginning of our renewal of the church today. Father Blake, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners. No, I'm praying for you. And I, I hope that this will inspire you to read the Second Vatican Council documents along with my book and, and re-inspire your hearts to, to really follow the Lord and his will for the future of the church. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Ave Maria Press has been publishing Catholic books and resources for more than 150 years and they are located right on the north side of the Notre Dame campus. Visit AveMariaPress.com for a wide selection of spirituality books, classic Catholic literature, and even books for families. You can also find podcasts and free downloadable Catholic content. Visit AveMariaPress.com and receive 25% off your order with code REDEEMER. Ave Maria Press, helping people to know, love, and serve God.